and you're listening to the Abide Podcast. To find out more about Abide, go to AbideChurchFL.com and enjoy today's message. Amen. So speaking of that, as, as my brother Mike Dow comes, I want you guys, listen, this guy carries... I believe that he's one of the voices that God is preparing for the end times. There are voices for the end times. I believe he is one of them. So can we just lean in this morning as he receives? And listen, let's just receive from him. All right, open up your Bible to the book of Acts. I'm just kidding. Some of you got, some who were here for conference a couple weeks ago, just got super scared. Uh, Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 2. As we do that, thank you guys for coming out this morning. I was just thinking in the back, man, this is a, a beautiful people. Um, not, not nece- I don't mean that necessarily aesthetically, although I'm not saying it's not. <laughs> I'm just saying primarily what I'm thinking about is not aesthetics first, uh, but more so hunger and passion for the Lord. Um, you know, Proverbs says there's something beautiful about the anointing. Um, and there's, there's hungry hearts here. Um, there, there's a tribe, a family here the Lord is building with hearts on fire. I mean, it means a lot. You shouldn't take it for granted. I uh, have the privilege to travel for whatever that means. It's, it's assignment. Uh, it's not definition. I don't need it. Um, I do it because I feel like it's what stewarding my life well means uh, because the Lord has invited me to do so. I'm all that to say that there's a space that God has carved out for you to honor him and give him glory and whatever sphere of influence that may be. I think at times we... We elevate and we appreciate and applaud different spaces that people fit into, but they're all assignments, right? They're they're all assignments, none greater than others. Um, You know, a compilation of dreams in the house. Uh, It's beautiful. Um, But I say that to say, don't don't take it for granted what the Lord is doing here, right? Sometimes it's hard to see the trees when you're standing in the midst of the forest, Right? We can grow familiar at times because of how long we've been in it that our appreciation begins to wane. Um, uh, I say that. The Lord is doing something special here. And I really honor your leaders and all these guys over here. This is a, a glory squad. Um, they're the real deal. Yeah, I really love these guys, honor these guys, um, try to do whatever I can to put myself and and my family in the same spaces, wherever they may be, as often as we can. Uh, You know we love you guys. Uh, We brought our whole crew this morning. So my wife, who was helping to lead worship, and then all five of our kids. Um, Some of you might not have known I was speaking this morning because I was in the back pushing the stroller, right, during worship. Shera, mama, get him, Jesus, like... Hey, my children are not a deterrent to what God has called me to, right? They don't get in the way. They are in the way. Um, It's primary ministry. I believe the Lord's going to have more to talk to me about regarding them than any altar call I've walked through, than any crowd I've preached to. Uh, These five lives mean a lot to me, and it's a joy to be their dad. Um, As we look at Philippians 2 this morning, um, I was sharing... Just briefly with 
um, Geo, that I really feel like the Lord wants to invite us in a fresh way to gaze upon his humility. Um, it's one of the reasons why we have to love the scriptures, because the scriptures reveal God as he is and as he wants to be known. And this is important, which means the scriptures should correct and conquer all of our inaccurate assumptions about who we want him to be, because God has gone to extraordinary lengths in order to reveal of himself what it is that he himself wants to be known. No man in this room can produce a revelation of God. It is up to God himself to reveal himself and what he wants to be known, this is what he puts on display. And so as we come to the scriptures, one of the things, and it's why the scriptures are so necessary in the ongoing journey of discipleship and growing into the image of Jesus, is because the scriptures reveal to us who that actually is in the way that he longs to be known. Because we can conclude this, God longs to be known. He longs to share himself with others. So much so that I believe God's desire to share himself with others is what moved him to create everything that we know. Everything as we know it to be. All of time and creation, the created order, the cosmos, and then sons and daughters. God longs to reveal himself so that he might share himself with others. Because God is all-powerful, which means he has no needs. But just because he has no needs doesn't mean he equally doesn't have any desires. There might not be anything that he needs. See, we can't get too into ourselves. This deflates our little self-absorbed bubble at times that our culture tries to put us in. Where, well, he leaves the 99 for the one because I'm amazing. He does. But then Paul says there's other times where you put the one out for the sake of the 99. So that corrects our perspective. So it's not all just about me. I am amazing and he did come and die for me even if it were only me. But I believe that he wanted to share himself with the people. He wanted to share himself. And we're going to look at, in Philippians 2, if you're taking notes this morning, you can put Philippians 2, 3 to 11. We're going to turn over to John 13. Maybe we'll land somewhere over in John 13, um, 1 through 4 or 5. We're going to look at several other places as well. But God longs to be known. And because he longs to be known, we have to look at what it is that he is choosing to reveal of himself so that we can see him as he is. I don't want my culture's Jesus. I don't want some social movement Jesus. I don't want some political party Jesus. I want God in the face of Jesus, the radiant one, the shiniest, brightest part of God revealing himself. And so I have to continually come back to the word and what the word has to say about who God is so that I can know him the way that he wants to be known. So before we read Philippians 2, I'm just going to pray something over all of us. Lord, this morning I'm asking you for grace. Holy Spirit, sweep across the room that you might touch our hearts in a real enough way for us to see this man, Jesus, a little bit more than we've ever seen him. Show us something that we haven't seen. 
peel back the layers and deepen even the things we think we know up until now. We want to know you, Lord. We want to know you, Lord. And in seeing you, would you make us more like you? Help us, Lord, this morning. Give us grace, open our eyes, and soften our hearts. Conquer all of our assumptions. Revive us from our disappointments, even as we sang out. In times where we thought we knew you or we wanted you to be something that you just didn't seem like you were catering to that inaccurate assumption. Help us, Lord, this morning to rise and to be conformed. Jesus is king. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I believe as we look at Philippians chapter 2 that Paul is writing... And even as he's writing, he's, he's giving an exhortation. And in most issues that Paul had with churches, there was a gospel issue. Right? When you read through all of the letters that Paul wrote, the majority of the time that he's bringing correction or exhortation or he's providing insight, it's a gospel issue. And a gospel issue meaning a kingdom issue, and a kingdom issue meaning an inaccurate perspective of the king. Right? An inaccurate perspective of the king. And so right in the middle of Philippians, Paul drops this epic revealing of the nature of who God is in the person of Jesus. And if you wanted to give a title or some sort of theme in order to remember the, the substance of the discussion this morning, uh, I would submit to you that God is humble. Now, see, we don't have the necessary appreciation for a statement like that whenever somebody says something because our culture has done everything that it can possibly do in order to bring controversy or in order for us to despise humility. Because in most times, we would define humility as a deformity, that there's something wrong. Um, it's lowly it's deformed, uh, it's, it's disastrous in certain instances because it is the exact opposite of what the system of the world is built on. In 1 John 2, when John writes, Beloved, don't love the world or its ways. He says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We understand that pride is a self-inflated um, a self-perceived arrogance. It's a self-appraisal that exalts itself above its opinion of others. Well, there's one in the scriptures that is known as self-exalted. That's Isaiah 14. I will make myself to be like the God of the Most High, and I will exalt my throne above the God of the heavens. That's the enemy. We know Ezekiel 28, he's infatuated with his own beauty. He's into himself. The most beautiful cherub ever created, covered with precious jewels and gems and stones and all of its splendor. But there was an infatuation with his own beauty and this self-infatuated, this self-appraisal, that it got pride in it, self-exaltation. It ended up corrupting his wisdom. And Ezekiel tells us in chapter 28, this this is why he was cast down. He was cast down, we could put it more simply, because he was too into himself. 
And he was more into himself than he was into God. Right? And we have to be careful of the intersection, which is where Revelation 12, 11 comes across, of these beautiful saints leaning into the last days. They overcame him, meaning the enemy, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, not loving their own lives. It's a direct contrast, not loving their own lives, even when confronted with death itself. And I think at times we have to continually come back to the scriptures in order for it to recondition our hearts to appreciate what God appreciates. Because the value system of kingdom values is a direct confrontation to the system of the age. And there is going to be inconvenient intersections ahead where we are going to have to make the choice to value what our king values. This Psalm 45-7 company. We love what you love. We hate what you hate. These are the ones that are anointed with the oil of gladness, exalted above their contemporaries, filled with joy, unspeakable that we have to appreciate what we know God appreciates and God appreciates himself because he is humble God is humble and we're not going to use the definition of humble to mean deformed to mean lower in stature to mean as if there's something wrong we're not going to use that definition for humble we're going to use a working definition of humble and again if you're taking notes God is humble because God is self-sacrificing at all times, giving of himself even unto the laying down of his own life for the benefit of friends and foes. God is humble because he is self-sacrificing, which self-sacrificing is the polar opposite of self-serving. Which means God always has the best interest of others in mind. And he is constantly giving of himself because he knows that the best thing for us is for him to reveal himself to us. He understands that the most extraordinary thing that he can do for you and for me is to draw close and to open our eyes and soften our hearts to where we might see him as he is. Because through the invitation that revelation provides to us, we are able to become less like us and to become more like what it is that we are able to behold. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, and we now, as in a mirror with unveiled face, are able to gaze upon the glory of the Lord and by the Spirit we are becoming what it is that we are beholding. God desires a people that are conformed to the image of his son. He wants a people that look like Jesus. He wants more people that look like Jesus. This Romans 8 predestination talk. They are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son which means he wants you to look more like him. And in order for you to look more like him, you actually have to see him because we spend most times looking at ourselves and then trying to condition all of our life to orbit around all of our desires. But God has a desire himself and it's that he would draw near to reveal himself to you so that you could be less like you to become more like him. 
Because the best thing that could happen to you is for you to be less like you. Well, Mike, that's offensive. Well, the revelation of who God is is offensive. It's offensive to every fleshly humanistic thing about us. Every ounce of the system of the age and the pride of humanity's drive to rebel against God and his loving boundaries and his intentions for creation. If there's anything within us that falls in line with that, it will always be offended by who it is that God is. Because he's humble. He's humble. And throughout the age as we know it, there have been multiple occasions where God has come down in order to reveal himself the way that he wants to be known. Right? Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, in the beginning in the garden. Right? Then you have the Tower of Babel issue where let us go down and see what it is that they're up to. This wasn't just some building project from the regions. <laughs> Right? Then you have the Exodus 19, probably one of the most epic, unappreciated instances in all of the Bible, where God physically steps down out of the heavens and reveals himself on the top of a mount. Man, there's fire, there's glory, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's smoke, there's the cloud. And what happened in Exodus 19 when God revealed himself the way that he wanted to be known? It says that when they saw the sight of how God longed to be known and how he revealed himself atop the mount, it says that they shrunk back in fear because they did not want to lean in to what it is that was being revealed. There was an invitation through the revelation that God gave them on the top of the mount. And this is the issue. When we are not yielding to what God is revealing, then the only consequence or byproduct is a hardened heart. A few sentences later, oh, we don't want anything to do with that. No, 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 no. Man, if that's who you are, I don't want anything to do with that. If that's the way that you actually are, if that's how you reveal yourself, we don't want anything to do with that. Moses, you can go up there and take care of that. You can come back down. You can talk to us. We'll deal with you. You can deal with that. We get to stay clear of that. We'll handle you. We're comfortable with you because you're like us. <laughs> so we'd rather relate to you because you're easier to relate to because you're like me. That's nothing like me. And that's confrontational. Because if I lean into that, then I have no ability to actually control the outcome of what happens when I give myself to that. But when I lean into you, I can control what happens with you because you're like me. And a few sentences later, they're dancing around a fire and they're worshiping a golden calf that they called Yahweh. Because when you don't lean into what it is that he reveals, then you form something like it that you can manage in your own strength and that you can determine the terms. And you might slap Yahweh language on it, but if it's not in exact proportion to what it is that God himself has revealed of himself, you can form it with your own hands, sustain it by your own strength. You can give all the fleshly initiative to it that you want to, 
because that is the tendency of humanity is to try to make a God in our own image so that we are not confronted by who he actually is, therefore putting a demand on your life and mine to actually change from what it is that we are to become more like what it is that he's revealing. And this is the issue. Man has always wanted a God that they can manage so that they can benefit from him instead of becoming more like him. And God wants to be known. And so the other instance where God has come down is where Paul is finding his reference point for the exhortation in Philippians chapter 2. And it's God in the man, Jesus. And reading these verses, we'll start with chapter, or not chapter 3, chapter 2, verse 3. And I'm going to read all the way down through 11. I mean, I would start with 1 and 2, because all of it is important. But it says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, I'm going to try my absolute best to, as concisely as possible, move through the things that are in my heart. God is humble. So much so that he is, at all times, creating a time and a space to unveil of himself what he wants to be known. And I believe that this instance that Paul is referencing with God in the man Jesus. First off, that is a humbling and an extraordinary thought all by itself if we just left that as a standalone. As John Piper would say, the infinite has become an infant. The thought that God himself would humble himself in order to enter into the human story not just upon the top of Mount Sinai, which he did, but he entered in with fire and glory and lightning and thunder and smoke and cloud, and there was violent earthquakes and all of that. We're familiar with a God who rules. We're familiar and we're comfortable with an all-powerful God. Psalm 123.1, to you I lift my eyes, O you who rules the heavens. 
Psalm 22, 28, for the nations or the kingdoms are the Lord's and he rules the nations. We're comfortable with a God who is seated on a throne, bringing judgments and decrees. We're comfortable with a God who has all power, all authority, all glory. We know that. Ezekiel 1, the heavens were opened and I was taken into visions of God. And there's the throne. Isaiah 6, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and he was seated on a throne and he was high and lifted up. Revelation 4 and 5, come up here. There's things I long to show you. And instantly I saw a throne seated in the heavens. We're very comfortable and okay with a God who rules by being all powerful, meaning being above manifesting himself in a way that seems to be exalted above the weakness of the human condition. But God becoming a man? Surely you can't tell me that God himself, who formed the universe as we know it, who took dust and made these creatures that are weak, broken, frail, insecure, Surely you can't tell me that the way that God at one point is going to enter into the human story is by reducing himself down to becoming one of the creatures that he himself has created. Surely you can't tell me that the uncreated one who created everything we know is going to join into the journey of his creation by coming in the likeness of his creation. Surely you can't tell me that this exalted God is going to plant himself in the womb of a woman and come into the narrative, the biblical narrative, as one of the humans himself that he longs to save. This cannot be the way. But Paul is telling us, and we know the story too, that in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, God chose to reveal himself through the virgin woman, the seed of promise. A son was born. We understand that God has joined into the human story, but he has, yes, humbled himself and become one of us so that he could do for us what none of us would ever be able to do for the rest of us. God has entered into the human story, but not as something materially better than the rest of us. Not to come and flex the muscles of deity in order to super impress everyone else that would be able to look upon him. But Isaiah 53 too tells us that there was nothing beautiful about him that we should desire him. That there was nothing of a magnetism of his aesthetics that you would have overlooked him in any crowd where you would have found him because he was not beautiful for the reason that all of our conditioning from our culture tells us that things are supposed to be beautiful. But he's beautiful because he has revealed himself as he is. And it's important that we see this uncreated God in created form in the man Jesus. Because Paul is telling us that he humbled himself to become a man. And as if that thought is not stunning enough alone, it says that he further humbled himself even when he humbled himself to become a man. 
He says, and as a man, he would not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But even as a man, he found the lower, the lowest, the lowest possible place in all of creation. He, not only would he not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. The uncreated God emptying himself to become a man, then as a man empties himself looking for the lowest place possible so that he can serve his father's desires for the bettering of the lives of those around him, even to the emptying of himself, laying down of his own life, death by way of obedience, and that death, the worst, most shameful, embarrassing death that you could humanly imagine. So God has become a man. And in becoming a man, he is being himself. And it's important that we look at God in the person of Jesus. Because we get to know about God what it is that he wants to be known of himself. And what we find in the person of Jesus is that God is humble. Because he's constantly looking to serve in the lowest possible place to better others, even if it cost him his own life. Right? This is the magnitude of the wisdom of the cross. This 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8, had the rulers of the age known what they were doing when they actually nailed Jesus to the cross, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Well, the Lord of glory operates by a different wisdom than the system of the age or even powers and principalities. I've heard one man of God say that in the kingdom, kings don't overpower, they underpower because kings carry crosses. And had the rulers of the age known what they were doing when they nailed Jesus to the cross, they never would have done it. Because this is the wisdom of God that is on display by his own son being nailed to a cross is that I am willing to do whatever I must do to reveal how humble I am. And this is the wisdom is that I am willing to die at the hands of my betrayers in hopes that my death would provide an offering to them that would better their situation. That's the wisdom. I am willing to lose my own life if it means that I can help to better yours. And we can't see the cross as some moment where God created a resolve that made him step outside of his own nature or character to provide a solution for what seemed like an impossible scenario. The cross is consistent with who God is at all times. The cross is the great unveiling of who God is because it provides the perfect time and place for God to reveal of himself a way about himself that had not been known up until that moment. Because God had to have a context in order to demonstrate. He had to have a context in order to display. He always has to have a context in order to reveal the things that he longs to have known of himself. And this is what the cross provides. The cross is the context where God 
in the midst of his creation is hanging naked, exposed. He is unveiled. He is being mocked. He is being ridiculed. He is being beaten by hands that he himself has formed. He is being spit on by life that he himself is empowering. But he is hanging there, seeming to be embarrassed before people and powers, all for the sake of revealing something of himself that he knows is powerful enough in the substance of what is on display to conquer all of the resistance and the rebellion at times that resides in the heart of humanity. Because we have to see something that is fundamentally different than us in order to be provoked into a different outcome than what we understand we have the power to create. Which is why it's easier to deal with Moses. Because I'm like him and I can be like him. But when God reveals himself in such splendor, in such glory, there's only one of two consequences. Either I lean forward And I say, Lord, help me by your spirit to make me more like you. Or I'm so confronted by what it is that's revealed that my heart hardens and I create distance. There is no gray special space for those of us who don't like either one of those options. It's either softening or hardening, hardening or softening. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the days of the rebellion in the wilderness. And the cross gives God the perfect time and place, the perfect scenario for him to reveal himself in a way that he had not been known up until that point. And this is why we worship him. Because he is holy, holy, holy. He is worthy, worthy, worthy. You are other than anything I've ever seen. You are so different Not just that your name is different, not because my name is Michael and your name is Jesus and and everybody just likes the name Jesus more than they like Michael, so I guess your name is exalted above every other. No, no, no. He is of a fundamentally different substance. What is powering his life itself is different. It is a different nature. It's part of the beauty of the born-again experience. It's not just that God paints the walls of the old man and we're a little bit better because we wear merch and adopt a language. That's not what the born-again experience is. The born-again experience is I've been given a brand new nature so that now what flows from me is natural because there's a divine life that has conquered the old self-life, which means I am not what I used to be, and now by the grace of God, now I am what I am, which is what Paul knew, 1 Corinthians 15, I am what I am by the grace of God, is that God is gracious enough to share himself with us, and now by the power of his spirit, he takes up residence residency on the inside and the jealousy is to conform us into the image of his son which means to transform us moment by moment day by day until we are more like him which means what's flowing from our nature from what's foundational from the dna from the default configurations in my guts on a gut level. I'm not trying. I'm not faking it till I make it. There's a 
flow of life. There's a river on the inside and it's bubbling up and it's transforming me and it's doing something on the inside of me that's in alignment with what it is that God is after. This is the born again experience. I have a brand new nature. I'm a different version of human. I'm a new creation. Everything attached to the old man is dead. It's gone. I've moved out of that house. I have a new address. I'm a new person. That's the born again experience. I have a new nature. Everything that flows from this nature is natural because it's flowing from a divine life. That's why it's natural. I'm not trying to work up my old self nature into religious expressions. I now have God on the inside and he is making me more like himself. And that's why we worship him. Because he is different than everyone else and every other thing we've ever seen. And it's one of the reasons he invites us to worship. Have you ever thought about that? The invitation, come and worship me. What does God gain in worship? By you worshiping him. Are you making him to be anything different than what he already is? Is there anything that you can think of that he gains in the place of worship? We've already come to the conclusion that he's all-powerful. Which means if you're all-powerful, you are in need of nothing. Right? He even reveals himself, the one who is and was and is to come. Because what God is, he is comfortable with. He is secure. Which would mean he's not insecure. He's secure, which means there's nothing that he desires to become. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one who is because what he is, he is, and he's not trying to be anything else. So what he is, he's comfortable with being, which is why when Moses in Exodus 3 says, who do I tell them sent me? He says, you tell them I am. Because what I am, I am. And I'm not trying to be anything else. Because I am everything that I want to be. And that's why the one who is, is comfortable with what he is. Therefore concluding or implying, there's nothing else that he's trying to become. There's nothing else that he wants to change into. This uncreated, eternal, ever-consistent, ever-living God is totally satisfied and secure with what it is that he knows he is. And so he's not changing. Which is one of the reasons that he can be worshipped. <laughs> oh, it's so good. God is the only person who can be worshipped 24-7 and still consistently be himself. <laughs> ah. He's the only one that can handle being worshipped and not have it change him. <laughs> Man, okay, real talk. Some of us can't get a few extra followers. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden, like, you're walking different, right? You talk different. You know what I mean? Like, you can't talk to me that way. Do you know who I am? Bro, like my YouTube channel is blowing up. 
Do you understand the terms? You have to now relate to me the way that I want to be related to, right? Some of us, we've graduated from lowly places with the appraisal of ourselves because we're defining the terms by the system of the age rather than by what God has revealed. God is the only person in all of the universe and even in eternity itself that can handle being worshipped and still consistently be himself. And consistently be himself. 24-7, day and night, night and day. And he's always himself. He is unchanging. So the invitation to worship is not serving some purpose that God has because he's so into himself. He doesn't need it for himself. But he understands that his purpose for his creation needs worship as a reference point so that he can serve what he knows is his best interest for you. Because you have to see something that is different than you so you can stop worshiping you. So that when you see him and you realize how beautiful he is, you can worship him. When you realize how awesome he is, you can worship him. When you realize how powerful he is, you can worship him. And it requires a reference point. It requires a revelation other than what our fleshly nature is able to produce. Produce, which is why the world is conditioned to worship its superstars. Hollywood, music industry, politics, world rulers, government structures, influential folks in the community. The world is conditioned because it's longing to express its adoration towards something. And without a different reference point, we are going to align our worship to an inferior place, person, or substance. It requires God to reveal himself so that your heart can come alive in the revelation of who God is and you can reorient all of your effort that is being given to lesser lovers and things and you can finally Fasten your affection onto the one person and place and thing that is actually going to provoke freedom and transformation rather than bondage and more tyranny through a self-inflated fleshly appraisal. Because worship will always lead to freedom and transformation when it's directed towards the Lord himself. Worshiping these idols will always bring us into more bondage. Worshiping these idols will always perpetuate more fear. I'm never good enough. The position is never good enough. The bank account never says enough. My, my social circle is never this. It's, you'll always be put into greater places of captivity through the rule and the tyranny of fear. But the love of God, perfect love, casts out all fear. And so God knows that the best thing that he can do is to reveal himself to you. He understands the best possible thing for you is for you to see him more and more and more. And he's humble enough in order to say that that's the best thing that could happen for you. Think, think about if it wasn't God who we were talking about, how utterly arrogant this would be. Well, hey, bro, listen. The best thing that I could do for you is to let you spend more time with me. Yeah. 
because I'm the man. And the best thing that could ever happen to you is that I would be willing to open up my own life to create more space for you so that you could spend more time with me because if you spend more time with me, then hopefully you're going to see me, you're going to learn from me, and therefore be more like me because what's best for you is if you were less like you so that you could be more like me. Because I'm humble enough to tell you that I've evaluated the situation and that's what's best for you. Matthew 11, 28 and 29, come to me, all you who are weary and all of you who are heavy laden and overburdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm humble. <laughs> right? It's the guy who wrote the book on humility, the 10 most humble people in the world and how I trained the other nine. Come to me. Come to me. Not a formula, not a strategy, not some fleshly man-made thing that you just put my name on. Come to me and learn from me because I'm humble. And in learning from me, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. God understands the best thing you could possibly do is to see him over and over and over and over and over. It's why we have to gaze over and over and over. It's why we must look again over and over. It's why we must behold over and over. It's why we must linger longer and longer and longer because we are becoming like what we are beholding. And so I want to be beholding the right thing so that my becoming is in alignment with the right thing. And God knows that he's actually humble enough to tell you the truth about what's best for you. And what's best for you is I'm going to come close to you and reveal myself to you so that you can be less like you to be more like me. And I'm humble enough to tell you so. It is mind-boggling. But he's consistent in all of his ways. Because when you understand that you are the most powerful, when you understand that you are exalted above every other, think about this, there's no need to call you the most high if there wasn't at times competition, at least in the perspective. God understands he's competing with no one. He is unmatched, there is no rivalry, there's not even a close second. Right? This isn't like some cosmic warfare and boxing match where we're just trying to see who wins out at the end. Like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do if he catches uh, like that right hook at the, you know, it's like, no, no, no. God is the most high so that he can communicate to us that there is not even a close second. He is not rivaled. There is zero competition. But when you understand that you are the most powerful uncreated thing in all of the universe, eternity past, eternity present and future, when you understand that there is not even a close second, that should then provoke that there is zero place or activity that you would be willing to go because you understand that there's nothing about what you do that is going to change what you actually are. Right? 
we work the exact opposite, right? We have insecurities about what we are, and so we try to find the right things to do. Because we feel like what we do makes up the difference in our own estimation of what we feel we lack in who we are. And so if I want to feel important, then I seek out important opportunities. Because important opportunities reveal to others and create opinions about me that makes up the difference in what I think about me. And so out of an insecurity, I have to find the right activity. But God is not insecure. He is very secure with what he is. And so he understands he's comfortable with what he is. So it doesn't matter what he does. Because what he does is not going to change what it is that he knows he already is. To put it in simpler terms, we would say the activity doesn't change the identity. But when you're secure in identity, you can take on any activity. Because it doesn't matter, even if it's a lowly place, the lowly place is not fundamentally changing the place that you realize you already occupy in your identity. Because activities are assignments. And assignments can change. But if you're insecure in your identity, then you will resist and reject certain assignments. Because you will equate your assignment with your identity. Thinking that what you do is who you are. Not realizing who you are is who you are and what you do, if you can be trusted, can shift and change season to season. Paul would have said it this way in Philippians 4. I have no needs. That's not why I'm talking to you this way. But I've actually learned how to live with little and with a lot. But I've learned in both seasons, there's a radical middle. And here's this cliche bumper sticker fridge magnet verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What Paul is saying is that I know who I am. I know whose I am. And God can now trust me with anywhere he wants to put me because there's nothing about what he asked me to do that's going to change who it is that I've realized I am because I am what I am and what I am is by the grace of God and so therefore what I'm doing doesn't make me or break me or change me for who it is that God already says I am. But if we have insecurity on the inside, then we evaluate assignments. We evaluate opportunities. We evaluate invitations in order to make up the distance. Because at times when there's a chasm on the inside, because that's what insecurity does. It, it creates an unrealistic distance between me and whatever the definition or the goal of success is. Whether it's a certain look, whether it's a certain social circle, whether it's a certain stature at my job, whether it's a certain bank account, whether it's a certain type of house, right? It creates distance. And therefore, I look down upon my current position because my definition of success is some unrealistic idea that's been created out there somewhere that I'm always leaning for. 
But what you realize time and time and time again is that when you get whatever your insecurity has said you must have, that it's never satisfying in the way you originally thought, and therefore it's never enough. And so the reach and the lean and the striving continues to continue. But God understands that he's comfortable with what it is that he already knows he is. And so he's unashamed and he's not embarrassed to search out the lowest place in order to serve and better the lives of others, which is one of the reasons he can be trusted with all power and authority, is because he's humble. He can be trusted with all power and authority because his only agenda is to better the lives of others. He can be trusted with all power and authority. Think of some of these statements. I've come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I realize that I have all potential. I could potentially do anything that I want to do, but I'm not interested in just doing everything I potentially have the power to do. I don't want to fulfill potential. I want to fulfill my father's purpose. Right? And at times, potential and purpose can synergize, but if we're not careful, we take potential to mean purpose. Right? But Jesus says, I'm not here to do my own thing, I'm here to do his thing. Because the thing that he wants to do is to better every single person that finds themselves in close proximity to me. And as a matter of fact, I'm ultimately going to do that because my father has created a time and a space and a place in order for me to give off an epic revelation of just how humble he is. It's going to be so extraordinary that it's going to confound all of the world's systems, the rulers, the powers, and even the mockery of rebels and people themselves. It is going to be so stunning and confounding, but God is going to do it even though everyone else is going to see it as the most embarrassing possible thing that could ever happen. How could you say that this is God? Here he hangs, being mocked, being spit on. How could you say that this is the most powerful? This is the most high. They told him, you helped others, now save yourself. You opened the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf. You multiplied food, raised the dead, cleansed the lepers. But you don't have enough power in order to do it when it would seem to serve your own self-interest. Well, we've already pre-concluded this is the exact opposite of being self-sacrificing at all times. <laughs> God is self-sacrificial at all times. Constantly giving of himself even unto the laying down of his own life in order to better the lives of friends and foes at all times. And this is what we find in John 13. John 13 tells us in the opening verse that Jesus realized his time was about to conclude, realizing his time on earth as a man, that it was about to conclude. It says that he knew where he came from, who he was, and where he was going again. That's called security. He realized where he came from, 
He came from the Father. Depending on your translation, I get it. It says a whole bunch of different ways. He realized he came from the Father. He knew who he was. He knew where he was going again. And that his Father had put all power into his hands. And the enemy, already having put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. But Jesus, realizing those that he's responsible for, those that his father had given unto him, it says that he loved them. And he loved them until the end. Verse 4. And verse 5, God as a man, in his final moments as a perceived free man, even though he was free at all times, Jesus before Pilate in John 19, Pilate says, why won't you say something to defend yourself? You hear what they're saying. And don't you realize I have power over you to crucify you or to let you go. And Jesus says, the only reason you perceive it that way is because my father has already designed a process for me. And I am submitting to the way that my father has already concluded he longs to reveal himself. Right? Verse 5, God as a man in his final moments, as a free man. Right? He's about to hand himself over. It's so staggering of a thought that in Matthew 16, Peter rebukes him for it. Right? Because sometimes the way God reveals himself doesn't line up well with all of our dreams and ambitions. <laughs> Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My father has shown you something by the spirit. I applaud that. Now that you've actually seen me, let me tell you what I'm all about. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to be brutally executed. I'm going to be mocked by people and powers. I'm going to hang there and die, and they're really going to bury me. And Peter says, whoa, 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 whoa. Pump the brakes, bro. This cannot be where this thing is going. I've left everything to follow you. I don't have anything to go back to. If that's where the train is going to land, there's nowhere beyond that that I can see as a benefit to me. Hey, bro, we thought we had a good thing going. We were kind of building something here for a little while. You can't derail all of my desires by you being like that. If you're actually like that, it's going to be confrontational to the way that I want you to be because there are interests that I have in joining my life to you. I know it hurts, man. Like, it hurts so good. There are interests that I have in joining my life to you. And if I'm confronted at any point, to realize that maybe you're not interested in what I'm interested in. Maybe you're not driving this thing to the destination that I think you should be driving this thing. All of my assumptions, all of my inaccurate perspectives, they must be conquered. And the way that God conquers them is to come close again and to serve his own desires by revealing himself again to you. That's how he does it. He's not going to argue with you about who he is. When has God argued with you? That's not how I am. Don't talk about me that way. No, 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 you can't say those things about me. Right? At times when we get frustrated, we get disappointed. Right? Think of Habakkuk. Where are you? I'm a prophet. I'm praying. Like, I'm giving my life to intercession. You're nowhere around. 
Like I keep crying out injustice, injustice, but you don't even care? God doesn't come in and argue. He says, look again and be in awe. (laughs) He's not coming to argue with you. In your inaccurate assumptions, he's going to reveal himself again. In all of your perspectives that need to be conquered, he's going to reveal himself again. He's not coming to argue. He's not coming to debate because, again, he's comfortable. Right? Insecurity says, I can't let you think about me the way that I don't want to be thought about. And so the fear of man is more me pleasing than it is you pleasing. Because I'm the one that's disturbed if you think about me or say something about me in a way that doesn't align with the way that I want to be known. That's the climax of insecurity. So insecurity looks like man-pleasing when it's really self-pleasing because you have to run around trying to put out all the fires and correct all of the perspectives so that people can think about you and say about you the way that you want to be thought about and talked about. This is insecurity at the climax. But God is not insecure. He's humble. And so in his final moments, it says Jesus gets up from the table and he unrobes himself. He unclothes himself. He unveils himself because there's a way that he wants to be known. And he takes on the towel of a servant and he begins to wash their feet. Who is this king of glory? That in his final hours and moments of a free man is choosing to wash feet. If you had 24 hours to live, how many of you would search for the feet of those that have betrayed you? How many of you would seek to serve God's purposes and interests in the lives of betrayers, accusers, radicals, rebels? How many of you would look for the lowest possible place to serve in the concluding hours of your freedom, even unto the end of your own life? How many of you in the final moments of your human experience and existence would look for lowly, servitude, humble, embarrassing places in order to empty yourself in love, therefore that God's agenda might be accomplished in the hearts of other people. I'm just going to let you know, he's not like me. I got restaurants I like. I got stuff that I got on a bucket list. Like, like he's not like me. I'm not looking for feet. I got a thing with feet anyways. I'm not looking for feet. I'm not a foot guy, right? Like all you feet guys in here, like bless y'all. I'm not a foot guy. I don't have a foot phobia, but, I, but I'm not a foot guy. Feet are strange. <laughs> it's like, and I'm definitely not in the 24 hours that I have remaining to live looking for feet. <laughs> oh, Lord, that you would help us to see you as you are. In the concluding moments, he unveils himself. Because, again, he's constantly trying to unveil himself, to reveal himself as he is so that we could see him the way that he wants to be known and be so challenged by what it is that we see that it would confront us and provoke us to lean into 
what it is that he's chosen to share of himself with us. And Jesus gets up to wash their feet. And he's washing the feet of a man who's already determined he would rather benefit from his life than be so challenged by his life that he would try to become more like him. Judas has already determined that $30, 30 pieces of silver, that $30 is more beneficial to his own self-interests. Judas has already concluded that there are certain things about this man, Jesus, that he has interests about. And he has sold out the possibility of becoming like him so that he can benefit from him in ways that he wants to benefit. He's already determined in walking with him, seeing his face, hearing his voice, that there are self-interests that are ruling the conversation. There are self-interests that are governing all of his interactions with this man, Jesus. There are self-interests that he is not able enough. He does not have the power to offload his own self-interest in order to overcome the desire that's been planted in his heart by the enemy to benefit from him instead of becoming more like him. And I think at a certain point, we have to ask ourselves, do we actually want to be like him? This is the journey of becoming. Behaving is not the same as becoming. You can behave, but just because you behave doesn't also mean you've become. You can behave from the exterior. Religious observance, your own checklist, your own to-do list, our own self-inflated appraisal, our own religiosity, our own Phariseeism. We can behave, but just because we are behaving does not always imply that we've been becoming. Becoming implies a nature that is fueling transformation. Behaving implies our own effort unto certain demonstrations or displays that we have deemed are worth our effort or attention. That's behaving. I've determined this act or activity is worth it. I will behave. I will do this. Becoming implies a nature that has now made you more like what God has revealed of himself, and you can't help but be what it is that you have become. And therefore, what you have become and are becoming is flowing at all times. And this is what we find in the person of Jesus. Again, he's not trying to be humble in order to, uh, to impress them. Because that would have a self-interest. He's not trying to look humble in order to be impressive. He is humble. And he already knows it's impressive. 
And so he's revealing what he already knows that he is, even when others have concluded that it's embarrassing. God can't wash feet. That would be embarrassing. That's what servants do. I've graduated from those types of responsibilities. I don't do that type of stuff anymore. I've been in this way too long. We hire other people to do that. <laughs> I don't wash feet anymore. Have any of us graduated from lowly? If we feel we've graduated from lowly, it's probably one of the reasons we can't be trusted with the power we're crying out for. We cry out for power to do things like him, but we don't actually want to be like him because being like him is confrontational. And Jesus says, don't wield power the way that other worldly rulers do, leveraging it and lording it over to them. The greatest among you should be the servant of all. And why is that? Because God is the most humble servant that has ever been revealed in all of the cosmos. Some of us are crying out for power, and it's the mercy of God that he hasn't given us the power that we've been asking him for because we haven't yet learned how to wield power the way that he does. He can be trusted with all power and authority because he is humble, self-sacrificing of himself at all times, honestly, eagerly looking out the lowest places in order to serve the interest of others to better their lives, even at the cost of his own. How many want power for that? Well, bro, I want power because I've got this revelation and I got to jump on Facebook tomorrow and release it. I want power because I'm the man and I've got business strategy. I want power. No, no, no. You want power according to the world system. But God has a system of sorts by which he wields power. And it's through humble servants that are willing to lose their own lives because they've been loved into submission and are willing to be embarrassed and mocked before the system of the age, knowing that what they are, they are. And because they are secure in identity, they can be trusted with any activity. Can you be trusted with any activity? Can God really ask you to do anything? To go anywhere, to serve anywhere, to do anything? Kenny? Are you offended? Are you embarrassed at the thought of some of the things that God may invite you to? God hangs naked as a man in the middle of the afternoon, having rocks thrown at him, spit on, mocked, criticized, and left for dead. And he's not embarrassed to do it because he knows who he is. And he's so powerful that he can reveal himself in the lowest place. Because the one who humbled himself looking for the lowest place understands that his father had already exalted him to the highest place. And the one who occupies the highest place does so because he's not embarrassed of the lowest place. And I would encourage us that we must... Look again at the beautiful humility of who God is. And that he might give us grace to see him and in seeing him by the power of the Spirit, give us grace not to resist what's being revealed, but to lean in to what God has been so gracious 
to share of himself with the rest of us. I want to invite us. Uh, I feel we can close this way into a corporate moment of beholding. And in beholding, just in your own heart, I'm going to ask you to say, Lord, I want to see you. I'm going to ask you to say, Lord, if you would be gracious enough, let me see you one more time. Give me grace that my heart wouldn't be hardened. Give me grace that I wouldn't resist what it is that you're choosing to reveal of yourself. Help me, Lord, to become more like you and not just to become more religious unto the performance or the pride of the system of the age. Help me to gaze upon this man, Jesus, and to be so humbled by what it is that I see of you in him. Come to me, all of you who are weary, trying to figure it out for yourself, trying to do it by your own wisdom, trying to sustain something by your own fleshly efforts. Come to me, not a system, not a strategy. Come to me and learn from me. Look at me because I am humble and tender and lowly in heart and take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. My burden is easy. And my yoke is light. Let's do this. Let's all stand. Um, I'm going to ask Cove to come back. We want to see you, Lord. Open the eyes of our heart this morning. Open the eyes of our heart this morning. Open the eyes of our heart this morning, Lord. I want to see you. Help me, Jesus. Holy Spirit, I ask you. Sweep over the room, every heart, and lift the veil and help us to see this man. And in seeing this man, Jesus, I pray that we would throw ourselves by the grace you give us utterly dependent upon your power in order to make us more like what it is that God has shown of himself. Lord, we know that you long to be known and we want to know you. Individually, corporately, Lord, we want to know you. Come on, just let your heart be stirred. And whatever response you feel is appropriate,
Whatever you think is appropriate. We want to know you, Lord. We want to know you, Lord. Who is this King of glory? Lift up ye gates, O ye ancient doors, and let the King of glory come in. Lift up your heads, O ye everlasting doors. worshipful response just begin to rise let's let a worshipful response just begin to rise come up from your own heart
gaze, lift your gaze, lift your gaze.
that we would ask God to do something across the coast. Because that's what the Lord showed us, fire from coast to coast. So let's stretch up our hands. Mike, would you come? Can I get some of my team to come? I want you to stretch your hands. Some of my staff can come. We just want to say yes and amen to what God is doing there. Mike, I actually feel like you were supposed to pray, bro, so I'm going to have you. visitation for fresh visitation draw near I'm asking you Lord for the resting of your glory upon a people to be transformed into the image of this man Jesus thank you Lord for power thank you Lord for glory Thank you, Lord, for visitation, encounters, deliverance, signs, wonders, healing, manifestations. And I feel like there's about to be a season of manifestations. Like you've been crying out for heaven to break in in a real practical way. Man, like tangible things. I'm not talking about weird, strange stuff. But man, like manifestations from the Lord. Man, like the kiss of heaven upon you guys as a company, as a people, in your gatherings, an extension of glory, things that you've been contending for. You've been contending for this. Man, your toiling has not been in vain. Your digging has not been in secret. Man, the Lord has seen you. Every prayer prayed, every tear that's been cried, your weeping has endured for a night, but surely joy is erupting in the morning. Man, the sun is about to shine. The sun is gonna eclipse the darkness. Man, Lord, would you do that? Would you mark them as a people? Mark them as a people. Mark them as a people. This is our inheritance. Signs, wonders, manifestations, glory, power. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Reveal yourself. Yeah, and I feel like the Lord is saying that you're not dreaming big enough, but not just ask Him for Melbourne, but for the whole entire Space Coast. So we come into agreement with that now in the name of Jesus. God, we declare that the Space Coast is yours, God, and we say yes. We say yes, God. We say yes. And God, I thank you for sending people to hold up their arms, God, and to run with them to run with them, God, who will walk in purity and holiness, God, that they would not be afraid to walk and stand for purity and holiness. We declare that over that region, God, that it would not be known for Cocoa Beach and the craziness that happens in spring break, but it would be known for the glory of the Lord. It would be called a place of purity and holiness. And Desiree, yeah, I just see you walking deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in the spirit. God, I thank you for dreams and visions. God, I thank you that she is a mighty, mighty, mighty woman of God. I thank you, God, for signs and wonders and miracles flowing, God, healing flowing from her hands in the name of Jesus. And God, I thank you for deliverance, deliverance just when you sing, just when you sing, just when you open your mouth, you don't even have to lay hands, that deliverance, people will be set free in the name of Jesus. God, we say yes. We come into agreement and we bless this ministry in the name of Jesus. 
Father, we pray that you would protect the purity of what you're doing there. That you would protect the purity. And even now, God, we ask you for a building for them. Father, and we ask it debt free. That you would give them a building and a space, not just for what they have now, but for what's coming. For what's coming. We come into agreement with that, God. We ask for a building. The space for the activity of the Spirit. And God, we thank you that what you're doing in a living room, you want to do it among thousands. I just feel that for you guys, man. To, to violently protect the purity of what he's doing. Violently. Be aggressive about protecting the purity of what he's doing. Because it's special. So we bless it. We thank you, God, for what you're doing all around Florida. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. 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 Bless you guys. Bless you guys. Listen, if you need to linger, you can go ahead and linger. We love you. Have an amazing week. Thank you for hanging out. I know it's late. Thank you for hanging out and waiting on the Lord. We love you. Have an amazing week. See you in prayer room. Give somebody a hug. Tell them how you love them.